Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Friday, October 6, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Melissa Topshire. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Biden approves the construction of the border wall in Texas. The EU agrees on a migration policy. Russia withdraws its Black Sea fleet from Crimea. Biden expresses concern over the future of Ukraine military aid. Iran's police are accused of assaulting a teenage girl for not wearing a hijab. Global carbon emissions plateau as wind and solar power surge. Sam Bankman-Fried's crypto fraud trial opens in New York. U.S. layoffs are found to be up nearly 200% in 2023. TikTok shutters its e-commerce services in Indonesia. And FIFA announces the men's 2030 World Cup will be hosted across three continents. President Biden approves new border wall construction. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, NBC, Fox News, Washington Examiner, CNN, and New York Post. The Biden administration announced Wednesday that it has waived 26 federal laws in South Texas in order to construct more border wall, marking a reversal from the administration's campaign policy regarding the southern border. The Department of Homeland Security, or DHS, announced the decision overnight in the Federal Registry, noting that the administration was waiving laws including the Clean Air Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, and the Endangered Species Act in Starr County, Texas. DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, a staunch critic of former President Donald Trump's border wall, said there is an acute immediate need to construct physical barriers and roads near the border. The announcement comes after Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, reported that there were more than 260,000 border encounters in September, a record high. Meanwhile, Trump said he expects an apology from President Joe Biden following the decision that will see 10 projects construct 20 miles of border barriers in South Texas. Biden, who had vowed not to build another foot of border wall, defended the decision, saying that the money DHS is using had already been appropriated for border wall construction under the Trump administration and that he couldn't redirect the funds elsewhere. To combat an influx of migrants, the Trump administration constructed roughly 450 miles of border barriers between 2017 and January of 2021. Thank you, Eric, for the facts. And on this program, we separate the facts from the narrative spins. We'll begin this round with a Republican narrative from the post-millennial. After condescending and false assertions that walls don't work, the Biden administration has had to face the reality of the mess it created. Trump knew eight years ago that securing the border was of the utmost importance as millions of illegal migrants invaded the U.S. unrestrained a crisis Democrats ignored in order to gain votes. They are now finally realizing the consequences of their actions. Counter that with a Democratic narrative coming from the Hill. Despite claims to the contrary, the DHS's decision isn't a reversal from Biden's stance on immigration. Money had been appropriated for border wall construction years ago under the former administration, and Biden had no choice but to use the funds. The president remains adamant that physical barriers aren't an effective way to handle immigration, and his administration will continue to pursue a humane policy. Eric, I was thinking about putting a border wall uh, in my living room so that like part of it can be just for me uh, and we can keep this influx of other people in my house from getting into my space. That's a good idea. You know, I had so many kids. I needed one of those years ago. EU member states reach a deal on migration policy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, DW, Euro News, The Guardian, and The National. 
EU member state representatives on Wednesday reached an agreement on how to address irregular immigration in crisis situations, paving the way for establishing common rules on migration and asylum. The agreement aims to ease pressure on countries like Italy, where many refugees arrive via the Mediterranean, and allow them to speed up their asylum procedures and ask EU countries for swift assistance, including financial support and relocation to other member states of the bloc. The agreement on the so-called crisis regulation, which European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen welcomed as a game-changer, would, if implemented, require countries that refuse to take in asylum seekers to pay those who accept them. The crisis regulation deal, sealed at a meeting of ambassadors in Brussels, set out rules to apply in exceptional situations when the EU asylum system is threatened with overload by a sudden and massive arrival of displaced peoples similar to the situation during the migration crisis of 2015 and 2016. The agreement came after Germany and Italy resolved a dispute over Berlin's support for non-governmental organizations in search and rescue operations in the Mediterranean. While Poland and Hungary voted against the agreement, Austria, the Czech Republic, and Slovakia abstained. The European Council, the Commission, and the Parliament of the 27-member bloc will now continue negotiations to find an agreement on the entire Asylum and Migration Pact. This was initially presented by the Commission in 2020 to be ahead of the June 2024 European elections. Melissa, thank you for those facts. Your active gives us our first spin. It's an establishment-critical narrative. The EU likes to portray itself as a human rights champion but the deal proves that this is nothing more than empty talk when it comes to itself. What is missing from the whole discussion about illegal migration is how to enable people in need, including thousands of children, to seek EU asylum legally and safely. Instead of offering protection, the EU wants to protect itself with increasingly punitive asylum and migration policies, while the Mediterranean has become a cemetery for people trying to reach, quote, fortress Europe. And here's the pro-establishment narrative from The Guardian. After years of negotiations, it is no exaggeration to describe the deal as historic. EU member countries have shown solidarity with frontline states like Italy, and the joint measure will help prevent a refugee crisis like the one in 2015. Given that 250,000 people have already entered the EU through irregular migration again this year, sharing the burden of migration across the EU is mandatory. The EU has taken a big step in creating a robust migration and asylum policy that also ensures a minimum set of humanitarian standards during a crisis. Russia withdraws its Black Sea fleet from Crimea. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, The Telegraph, the Institute for the Study of War, Reuters, BBC News and Guardian. Following a series of Ukrainian attacks, Russia has withdrawn the majority of its Black Sea fleet from Crimea, according to a Wall Street Journal report published on Wednesday, citing British intelligence officials and satellite imagery, the Telegraph has also reported that fleet activities are likely relocating to Novorossiysk in the face of threats to Sevastopol. Previously, the U.S. military think tank, the Institute for the Study of War, had claimed that Russia had transferred at least 10 vessels from Sevastopol to a port in Novorossiysk to protect them from continued Ukrainian strikes on Russian assets in occupied Crimea. The reports come after Aslan Bajanya, leader of the pro-Russia breakaway region of Abkhazia in Georgia, said he had signed a deal with Russian President Vladimir Putin to host a permanent naval base for Russia's navy in the territory's coastal region of Ochamchira. 
Russia's Black Sea Fleet, based in Sevastopol on the Moscow-occupied Crimean Peninsula, has been repeatedly targeted by Kyiv's forces since Putin invaded Ukraine in 2022. On September 13th, a large landing vessel and a submarine were reportedly damaged beyond repair after Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky launched a pre-dawn missile attack on a Russian shipyard in Sevastopol. Those were the facts, and we'll start this round of spins from the Atlantic Council with a pro-Ukraine narrative. Reports on Russia's fleet retreats from Crimea are the latest setback for Putin, as it shows that Ukraine is winning the battle for the Black Sea. The feat is even more remarkable, given that Ukraine doesn't have a functioning navy, but has carried out attacks using domestically manufactured sea drones and commando raids. Follow that up with a pro-Russian narrative coming from TASS. The news of the demilitarization of the Russian Black Sea Fleet is just Western propaganda. Moscow doesn't comment on the positions and possible transfers of personnel and equipment of its defense ministry, as the revelations would put both assets and personnel at risk of attack. And we frequently get a nerd narrative on this program. This comes from the Metaculous Prediction community. And this one says there's a 1% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory as independent before 2024. Biden is worried that Washington turmoil could upend Ukraine's aid. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, NBC, and the Associated Press. On Wednesday, U.S. President Joe Biden stated that current political conditions in Washington could derail future military aid to Ukraine, urging Republicans to end their infighting and back critically important assistance for Kyiv. It does worry me, Biden told reporters when asked to comment on the consequences of Republican Representative Kevin McCarthy's removal from the position of House Speaker. However, Biden emphasized that bipartisan support for Ukraine remained in the chamber. Biden revealed that he would soon deliver a major speech about funding for Ukraine, claiming it was critically important for the United States and our allies that we keep our commitment. The president also suggested that there may be alternate methods of getting funding to Ukraine before remarking that he was not going to get into that right now. It was also revealed on Wednesday that the U.S. had supplied Ukraine with more than one million rounds of ammunition seized from Iran, according to Attorney General Merrick Garland. The munitions were reportedly headed to Houthi forces in Yemen in violation of a U.N. arms embargo before being seized by the U.S. Garland claimed that the U.S. Department of Justice would continue to use every legal authority at our disposal to support Ukraine's fight for freedom, democracy, and the rule of law. Melissa, thank you for laying out the facts of that story. We begin our round of spins with a left narrative coming from Guardian. Due to the instability in Congress created by Republicans, America's future assistance to Ukraine is now in jeopardy. This creates a risk that Ukraine will no longer be able to meaningfully defend itself from Russian aggression. Republicans need to end this political brinksmanship immediately. And The Hill now gives us a right narrative. Despite over $113 billion of U.S. funding, the front lines in Ukraine have barely shifted in months of fighting. As such, Americans are right to ask what the strategy is and how the war will eventually be brought to a close. The U.S. cannot be expected to continually throw money at the war, particularly with problems at home and with the national debt spiraling to over $5 trillion. The Metaculous Prediction community giving their nerd narrative saying there's a 2% chance that there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict before 2024. Eric, you're pretty good at speaking. Do you think you want to be the Speaker of the House? Yeah, I think you would be a better choice. Oh, oh well, you flatter me. <laughs> 
terrible news coming from Iran, where police have been accused of beating a girl into a coma. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, BBC News, Iran Wire, Daily Mail, Middle East Eye, and the United Kingdom House of Commons Library. Human rights activists on Wednesday claimed that Iran's police physically assaulted a teenage girl because she wasn't wearing a hijab in a Tehran metro station. The 16-year-old, who was reportedly pulled unconscious from a train, is in a coma and is currently being treated at the Fajr Air Force Hospital, where she is under tight security. Sharing a photo that appeared to show the deployment of police units outside the hospital, Iranian journalist Samira Rahi alleged that, quote, security forces have been inspecting the vehicles passing through the area. Meanwhile, the girl's parents have reportedly declared that their daughter fainted due to low blood pressure, after which she lost her balance and her head hit the cabin. Last September, 22-year-old Masa Amini was allegedly killed in police custody after being arrested for not wearing a hijab. Iran, however, has claimed she died of a heart attack. Amini's death triggered an unprecedented wave of nationwide anti-government demonstrations that spilled into this year and, according to Iran Human Rights, killed at least 537 protesters and saw over 19,000 arrested. Those were the facts, and we'll start with an anti-Iran narrative from Iran International. The Islamic Republic's morality police have yet again victimized a young girl so as to enforce a mandatory dress code. While journalists reporting on their inhumane behavior will be imprisoned, the victim's family will be forced to air fabricated views. The Iranian authorities are using the very same playbook they applied to malign Amini. The pro-Iran narrative coming from Press TV. The West has again resorted to distorting the facts of a sad incident in a smear campaign against the Islamic Republic. Such malicious allegations can only prove that Western countries don't care about human rights, as they have no qualms using women as a political tool against independent nations. And we have a nerd narrative on this story from the Metaculous community saying there's a 50% chance that Iran will cease to be an Islamic Republic by December 2036. A new report says global carbon emissions plateau because of the growth of wind and solar. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, New Scientist, Energy Live News, Electrek, Reuters, and the IEA. According to a report published by energy think tank Ember, carbon emissions from the global energy sector stalled in the first six months of 2023 and may peak later this year while global wind and solar power increased. The report, which analyzed data from January to June 2023, covered 78 countries that reportedly make up about 92% of global electricity demand. It found that the global power sector released 0.2% more carbon in the first half of 2023 than last year. However, the report also found that wind and solar energy contributed 14.3% of global electricity, up from 12.8% in 2022. However, there was a historic fall in hydropower generation, a negative 8.5% due to droughts. As a result, fossil fuel generation grew marginally to meet this shortfall. The report's findings come after the International Energy Agency, or IEA, recently warned that renewables must triple by the end of 2030 to achieve the world's climate goals. A failure to do so, the IEA claims, would mean having to remove nearly 5 billion tons of CO2 from the atmosphere every year during the second half of this century. Melissa, thank you for those facts. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from Energy Live News. 
The impressive rise of solar and wind energy, along with other renewables in the mix of global energy sources, shows that collective action can lead to planet-saving results. Some of the world's worst polluters, like China and India, have led the way in weaning the international community from fossil fuels. The world can breathe a sigh of relief. And The Guardian brings us Narrative B. The deficit in hydropower generation shows how fickle the global renewable energy mix is. This must put the world on guard. The international community must ensure that the advances made till now are not squandered. It must remain focused on tripling the world's renewable energy capacity, which is the only thing that can pause the world's runaway warming. As expected, the nerds from the Metaculous Prediction community are offering their narrative. They say there's an 85% chance that renewable energy will contribute between 25% and 48% to global electricity production in 2030. In our next story, opening statements have been presented in the Bankman-Fried trial. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Post, Guardian, BBC News, and New York Post. On Wednesday, opening statements were made in front of a jury of 10 women and two men in the criminal trial of former cryptocurrency entrepreneur Sam Bankman-Fried in a downtown Manhattan courtroom. Bankman-Fried, who founded the now-bankrupt cryptocurrency exchange FTX and sister hedge fund Alameda Research, is accused of diverting billions of FTX customers' money to risky trades at Alameda and unlawful purchases. Prosecutors estimated Bankman-Fried took more than $10 billion from unsuspecting customers, with lead prosecutor Thane Wren describing Bankman-Fried's actions as, quote, massive fraud committed to make himself even richer. In response, Bankman-Fried's lawyer Mark Cohen said no one was defrauded and his client didn't intend to defraud anyone, adding that Bankman-Fried's business practices were, quote, reasonable and that, quote, it's not a crime to be the CEO of a bankrupt company. The trial, which is expected to last approximately six weeks, should feature several high-profile witnesses, including Bankman-Fried's father and brother and Anthony Scaramucci, a one-time spokesperson for former President Donald Trump. Thanks, Eric, for the facts. We'll start Narrative A from Wired. There was no fraud committed here. Anyone investing with FTX knew the risks involved and was informed about their money being shared with Alameda. All decisions made by Bankman-Fried were made above board, and had it not been for a run on FTX, it would still be rolling along. Follow that up with Narrative B coming from Bloomberg. Whether the defense tries to paint Bankman-Fried as a good-faith actor or a naive math nerd, there are numerous technical reasons not to believe the story Bankman-Fried's lawyers are telling. What it comes down to is that Bankman-Fried was living in a $30 million penthouse while he was betting big with clients' money, and now their money is gone. This doesn't look good for the former crypto czar. And the nerds have another opinion, saying there's a 50% chance that Sam Bankman-Fried will be sentenced to at least 188 months in prison before 2026. U.S. layoffs are up nearly 200% in 2023. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, CNBC, and The New York Times. According to a report released Thursday by the career services firm Challenger, Gray & Christmas, U.S. companies laid off more than 47,000 employees last month, up 58% year over year. Over the first nine months of the year, the report said there were roughly 605,000 layoffs, a 198% jump from last year. While the worst industry in this respect was the tech sector, which has had 150,000 layoffs so far this year, up 716% year-over-year, the retail and health sectors were second and third, laying off 71,000 and 53,000 respectively. 
On a percentage basis, the media industry was right behind tech, showing a 550% increase in layoffs. Earlier this week, the Labor Department reported an unexpected surge in job openings, with ADP announcing that private payrolls grew below forecasts at 89,000. Friday's upcoming non-farm payroll report is expected to show jobs increased by 170,000 in September, down 17,000 from August. This comes as job openings have dropped since the 12 million posted on April 2022, and though openings did jump in August, the number of openings per unemployed worker was stagnant at roughly 1.5. Meanwhile, the rate of workers quitting their jobs in August remained at 2.3%. Meanwhile, those seeking unemployment benefits totaled a seasonally adjusted 207,000 in the week ending September 30th, up 2,000 from the prior period, but lower than the 210,000 projected by the Dow Jones consensus. As the Federal Reserve has boosted interest rates over the last 19 months to try and cool inflation, the labor market has remained mostly resilient. The unemployment rate, too, has remained in line with pre-pandemic levels, hovering between 3.4% and 3.8% this year. Thank you, Melissa, for those facts. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from ABC News. Despite fears that the Fed's rate hikes, which were necessary in the face of record inflation, would lead to reduced spending, job cuts, and high unemployment, the actual outcome has been more positive. Inflation has decreased from 9.1% to 3.7%, and unemployment remains below 4%. Furthermore, inflation was driven more by supply disruptions from the pandemic and geopolitical events rather than overheated demand. If current trends persist, the Fed might actually achieve a soft landing. Here's the establishment critical narrative from the Wall Street Journal. It's not the Fed, but rather the bond market, particularly the 10-year Treasury yield, that has the biggest impact on rising interest rates in everyday life. As the Fed and China have bought up most of the U.S.'s $33 trillion debt, Americans should be concerned about when the creditors demand higher interest rates. The U.S. Treasury yield is the most important asset in the world, but Washington continues to spend recklessly while bickering about the less consequential Fed rate. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 41% chance that the U.S. will enter a recession before 2025. TikTok shuts e-commerce service in Indonesia following a ban. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, Tech in Asia, BBC News, Associated Press, Bloomberg, and Tech HQ. On Wednesday, TikTok Indonesia halted its online shopping service to avoid being shut down. The move followed a government order last week which requested the app drop its e-commerce feature. The social media giant must now obtain a license from Indonesia's Ministry of Trade and create a standalone app so it can continue operating. The country is TikTok Shop's largest e-commerce market in Southeast Asia in terms of gross merchandise value. The move to split TikTok's e-commerce from its video sharing service was initially part of the company's attempt to protect local physical and online retailers, while TikTok Shop was originally piloted in Indonesia. The ban on online retail transactions on social media purportedly aims to create a fair and healthy e-commerce ecosystem amid concerns over predatory pricing, possible domination of social media algorithms, and the use of personal data. Indonesia has become the first Southeast Asian nation to push back against China's ByteDance-owned app, just as it was expanding its e-commerce presence. TikTok has long been under the lens in the West and in India over national security concerns. In June, the TikTok CEO announced plans to invest billions of dollars in Indonesia 
and Southeast Asia, including more than $12 million towards helping over 120,000 small and medium enterprises go online through TikTok Shop. Thanks, Eric. Those were the facts, and here are the spins, starting with a narrative A from Jakarta Globe. Jakarta has taken decisive action to balance e-commerce with physical market operations, protecting local shops from being squeezed out of business. TikTok has wisely adhered to the new rule. Like television networks, the video sharing app can carry advertisements but cannot establish shops. The Jakarta Post gives us narrative B. While the Indonesian government claims to be leveling the field, new regulations clearly show an alignment with established players to the detriment of disruptive micro, small, and medium enterprises that have grown through digitalization. This policy may help some underprivileged businesses, but is also likely to hurt technological progress in the country. And the nerds have another say. This time there's a 4% chance that the U.S. will ban TikTok before 2024. FIFA will host the 2030 World Cup on three continents. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Times, Al Jazeera, the Associated Press, CBS, The Guardian, and BBC News. On Wednesday, FIFA's governing council announced that the 2030 Soccer World Cup will be held in six countries on three continents to mark the tournament's centenary. The combined bid of Morocco, Portugal, and Spain was unanimously agreed as the sole candidacy to host the event. The centenary celebration ceremony will be held in Montevideo to pay homage to the inaugural World Cup hosted and won by Uruguay in 1930. While Argentina and Spain have previously hosted the World Cup in 1978 and 1982, respectively, Uruguay, Morocco, Paraguay, and Portugal will be first-time hosts. This decision must be ratified next year at a Congress of FIFA's 211 member associations, but the consent is considered a formality. The six host nations will qualify automatically for the tournament scheduled for June through July 2030. Climate groups have criticized the proposal for the World Cup to be played over thousands of miles, claiming the plans for the tournament will mean more emissions, more flights, and more climate damages. Meanwhile, FIFA also confirmed that only bids from the Asian Football Confederation and the Oceania Football Confederation will be considered for the 2034 World Cup, which has prompted Saudi Arabia to announce it will bid to host the competition for the first time. Melissa, thanks for laying out the facts. The first spin is Narrative A coming from Mundo Deportivo. This innovative and audacious decision is groundbreaking and will appropriately mark the 100th anniversary of the FIFA World Cup by creating a unique hosting agreement to celebrate soccer's rich heritage and global unity. FIFA must be praised for putting forward a visionary arrangement that will prevent a prolonged and costly bidding process. And the Daily Mail gives us Narrative B. Given that scandals have long marred FIFA, one can only speculate why the governing body has taken such an illogical decision that adds to its ongoing cycle of destruction against the World Cup. Supporters and players will not only have to travel up to 12,000 miles and spend a small fortune, this proposal will dampen the atmosphere usually found in single-nation tournaments. And we have our final nerd narrative coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. It says there's a 75% chance that Brazil will win the FIFA World Cup by the end of 2050. (laughs) 
thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Friday, October 6th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news. You can also download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Melissa Topshire, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.